new research about the Mozilla Play Store and their privacy labels. Ubuntu is getting rid of default Flatpak support. Android is hardening their firmware, finally. Some interesting claims about ExpressVPN, some news about Activision, and much, much more. Welcome to Surveillance Report 123, where we are dedicated to keeping you private and secure with the latest news from the past week. I am Nathan from The New Oil. And I'm Henry from TechLore. Our promo segment, as usual, we have Patreon. If you want to support us and get a little bit of something in return, we have two tiers, a $5 tier that lets you ask a question, and we have a $10 tier where you don't get to hear this pitch anymore, and you also get to hear a longer version where we get a little bit more ranty and add a little bit more analysis and stuff like that to some of the stories. If you want to support us a little bit more privately, we have LibrePay. We have Monero, which is about as private as you can be on the internet when it comes to financial transactions. But as with LibrePay, you do not get any kind of perks or anything. It's just a great way to support us while maintaining your privacy. So three ways to support us. If you are interested in helping keeping us going, thank you guys very much. And also just wanted to plug again a real quick reminder because it's been a while. Monerotopia. May 5th through 7th, Mexico City. We have a discount code if you're interested in attending that conference, and there will be links and stuff in the show notes. Okay, we do have two quick updates before we launch in. The first one comes from me, and it's about PeerTube. And that is, if you are a PeerTube user, I just want you guys to know, we are, I am erasing all videos older than two months for surveillance report. The main reason I'm doing that is space. If you guys really want us to keep them there, we can do that, but it does cost a pretty significant amount of money in my opinion. It's like $20 per extra 100 gigs of storage, which in my opinion is a lot of money. The other reason is, in my opinion, surveillance report is a current events thing anyways. I don't understand why you would go back and read newspapers from like 1980 unless you're looking for a specific story. So personally, I don't really see the point in keeping those older videos, but I know some people do like them. So I don't know. If you guys have an issue with that, let me know. But otherwise, that's kind of my plan going forward just to help conserve space and save a little bit of money. And our other announcement is about Odyssey and comes from Henry. Also, just to add on there, we're still going to keep the videos on YouTube and Odyssey. It's just PeerTube won't be updated. So there's still be like, you still will be able to go back and see the old ones if you want to, just not on PeerTube, which we're paying for the hosting for, not YouTube. Yeah, so. that PeerTube instance, for those who didn't know, is like completely run by the new oil, which is me in-house, all that, paid for, run by everything. And regarding Odyssey, we have disabled comments on Odyssey just universally, so you can't leave comments on Odyssey videos. This is mainly due to time. We have very limited time, because surveillance report is only run by myself and Nate. Like, yes, we both manage, like, Nate has the new oil, I have TechLore, but surveillance support is literally just us two, yet we still have to moderate our comment sections. We don't have to, but we'd rather not just have, like, a mountain of crap on our videos, and that tends to be what Odyssey is, so I was going through and occasionally moderating them, and it's, like, the huge... I don't have an issue saying Odyssey is an emotional drain of a platform for me. And I think it is for a lot of creators that I talk to behind the scenes. Also, Odyssey has limited moderation tools and it still has a pretty large audience. So that's kind of a bad combination because something like PeerTube at least is a small audience. But we're still going to be publishing to it. You're still going to have a mirror of our content there that you can engage with just through comments and things like that. But yeah, no comments over there. SR again is just Nate and I. We have limited time and energy, especially to deal with crappy comments. And we'd rather give you guys time and energy on these episodes. So thanks for working with us. And I hope you understand. If you want to leave comments, leave them on YouTube or PeerTube. Highlight story. This comes from Mozilla, and it's not a bad thing. So it's just a research article from Mozilla. It's data privacy labels for most top apps in Google Play Store are false or misleading. So uh, some context here, Apple released their app transparency 
privacy labels, whatever, in the app store where you're downloading an app. And it's like, this is the information the app collects about you. Uh, Apple was like, this is huge for privacy. And in some ways it was, but then we saw a mountain of research articles saying like, it's not that effective because developers still have to self-report this and there's problems with it. And then Android afterwards published their own thing as well. And there actually hasn't been much research into this. So it's really cool that Mozilla stepped forward and did this. So here is from the article, quote, Google Play Store's data safety labels would have you believe that neither TikTok nor Twitter share your personal data with third parties. The app's privacy policies, however, both explicitly state that they share user information with advertisers, internet service providers, platforms, and numerous other types of companies. These are two of the most egregious examples uncovered by Mozilla's privacy-not-included researchers as part of a study looking at whether Google Play Store's new data safety labels provide consumers with accurate information about what apps collect, use, and share personal data. In nearly 80% of the apps reviewed, Mozilla found that the labels were false or misleading based on discrepancies between the app's privacy policies and the information that they self-reported on Google's data safety form. The study uncovers serious loopholes in the data safety form, which makes it easy for apps to provide false or misleading information. Something else, Google exempts apps sharing data with service providers from its disclosure requirements, which is problematic due to both the narrow definition it uses for service providers and the large amount of consumer data involved. Google absolves itself of the responsibility to verify whether the information is true, stating that apps are responsible for making complete and accurate declarations in their labels. So very similar issue to what we're seeing with Apple. Again, these labels uh, might be nice for certain things, but you shouldn't be over-relying on them either, especially when they just contradict their own privacy policies. I don't think it means this is a bad tool, again. People like heard me back in the day trying to defend Apple's privacy labels in some capacity, and it's the same thing here. I think this is a step in the right direction. It just means that the execution is bad and that they need to fix and actually have like requirements in place for people to actually be honest about these and for there to be consequences when it's discovered that they're lying about them. All right, with that, we'll move into data breaches. We're going to start off with Coinbase, who says some employees' information was stolen by cybercriminals. I'm just going to quote the article here. Coinbase has confirmed that it was briefly compromised by the same attackers that targeted Twilio, Cloudflare, DoorDash, and more than 100 other organizations last year. In a postmortem of the incident, Coinbase said that the so-called octopus cybercriminals stole the login credentials of one of its employees in an attempt to remotely gain access. In the case of Coinbase, they first sent spoofed SMS text messages to several employees on February 5th, advising that they needed to log in urgently using the link provided to receive an important message. One employee followed the phishing link and entered the credentials. In the next phase, the attackers tried to log into the internal system using the credentials, but failed because it was protected with multi-factor. 20 minutes later, the attackers used voice phishing to call the employee claiming to be from Coinbase IT and directed the victim to log into their workstation. This allowed the attacker to view employee information, including names, email addresses, and phone numbers. Coinbase said no customer data was accessed, but the company's chief information security officer said he recommends that users switch to hardware security tokens for a stronger account access. First of all, Coinbase should be using hardware tokens. And then this is just a reminder, like two common defenses against phishing. Don't click the link. Number one, if it's legit, go to the actual website, log in, the message will still be there. And number two, like just kind of if one thing to notice, if there's a sense of urgency, like you need to log in right now, or we're going to cancel your account or cancel your order or whatever, that's a sales tactic that attackers use to try and pressure you into not thinking clearly. Stanford University discloses a data breach affecting PhD applicants. This affected about 900 individuals from the economics program, and it included names, date of births, home and mailing addresses, phone numbers, email addresses, race, ethnicity, citizenship, and gender. I guess for all employees, if there's anything that you can use to compartmentalize information a little bit, see if you can do that. That includes like phone numbers and emails specific to your job. And if you can try to have like a a home and mailing address, well, a mailing address that's not your home is ideal if you can get one of those. 
Cybercriminal breaches Activision Slack, steals Call of Duty info. I'm going to quote the article again. A cybercriminal managed to break into a Slack channel of gaming publishing giant Activision, post offensive messages to the targeted account, and steal information related to the upcoming Call of Duty releases, according to screenshots posted by uh, Cybersecurity Collective. The hack appears to have happened through social engineering, with the attacker tricking an employee into providing an SMS-delivered two-factor authentication code. The company says that no sensitive employee data, game code, or player data was accessed. TELUS, T-E-L-U-S, is investigating a leak of stolen source code and employee data. This is Canada's second largest telecom provider. Attacker claims to have 76,000 employee names and email addresses for sale, plus a private GitHub repos, source code, and payroll records. Bleeping Computer is able to verify names and email addresses as current employees, particularly software developers and tech staff. Telus claims to have found no evidence of a breach, but Nate has $20 on that it's legit, and that tends to be the pattern, so I don't know if anyone will bet against you there. And our last data breach, the headline says sensitive U.S. military email spill online. The U.S. Department of Defense secured an exposed server on Monday that was spilling internal U.S. military emails to the open Internet for the past two weeks. The exposed server was hosted on Microsoft Azure's government cloud for Department of Defense customers, which uses servers that are physically separated from other commercial customers and as such can be used to share sensitive but unclassified government data. A misconfiguration left the server without a password, allowing anyone on the Internet access to the sensitive mailbox data inside using only a web browser just by knowing its IP address. The server was packed with internal military email messages dating back years, some of which contained sensitive personnel information. For example, one of the exposed files included a completed SF-86 questionnaire, which were filled out by federal employees seeking a security clearance and contain highly sensitive personal and health information for vetting individuals before they are cleared to handle classified information. These personnel questions contain a significant amount of background information on security clearance holders valuable to foreign adversaries. And... As usual, it is unclear if anyone else accessed the server during this time besides the researcher who found it. And now company news. Google will boost Android security through firmware hardening. Google says that together with its Android ecosystem partners, it is working to improve the security of the firmware that interacts with Android, exploring several protection mechanisms. These include things like compiler-based sanitizers that can catch memory safety issues, allowing security flaws, or crashes during the code compilation stage. And this also includes exploit mitigations like control flow integrity, CFI, kernel control flow integrity, KCFI, and shadow call stack and stack canaries. Memory safety features aim to prevent memory errors such as buffer overflows, user after free attacks, and null pointer dereferences. Overall, this seems like a very good step in the right direction, and it's always good to see companies like Google and Apple make steps to improve the security of their devices. I can't find very good reasons to be upset about this. All right, the next one comes from Samsung, who is adding a zero-click attack protection to Galaxy devices. They're calling the Samsung Message Guard, and uh, if I understood the article correctly, it basically just isolates the message and runs it in a sandbox in order to check for malicious code. In my opinion, from what I can tell, I I think this is only going to work with known malicious code. I don't think it's for better or worse. I don't think it's using any kind of AI to like actually evaluate the code. I don't know. To me, it seems like a slightly more advanced antivirus. But then again, I'm going to be honest. I'm really biased against Samsung. So I just assume that this is useless because they haven't left a particularly stellar taste in my mouth. But feel free to let me know if I'm wrong. Maybe, Maybe this is actually a really good protection and that's really cool. If this is actually useful, then good job, Samsung. And if it's not, then nah. Final story is just from a single person. It's not really a story, so this isn't like from a journalist or anything. Uh, it's just from a redditor who w- shared that ExpressVPN exposed their real IP address during the whole VPN session on their phone, despite it 
being enabled and on. And the more important thing is ExpressVPN didn't seem to take this leak very seriously. So long story short, the VPN was on and they were checking their IP address and that it was their unprotected IP address. So it's unclear, based on the screenshots, if they enabled something like only allow VPN traffic through the VPN tunnel. It's like a global kind of firewall that you can enable on Android. It's unclear if that would have done anything. It seems like there's a lot of iffy details that are missing here and this is unfolding. But either way, I guess the thing I'm looking at more is how Express dealt with this issue, which doesn't seem to be fantastic. So again, we like to stick with the trusted VPN providers like Mulvad, iVPN, and Proton. Or use Tor if that is something that's relevant to your threat model. With that, we'll move into research. Our first article says a new kind of bug spells trouble for iOS and macOS security. Researchers are publishing details of a bug that could allow criminal attackers to break out of Apple's security protections and run their own unauthorized code. The team says the security flaws they found, which rank as medium to high severity, bypass protections Apple had put in place to protect users. Researchers say that finding the new bug class means researchers and Apple will potentially be able to find more similar bugs and improve overall security protections. Apple has fixed the bugs the company found, and there's no evidence they were exploited. The article does go into a little bit of background on like what specific areas they explored, what led them to uh, going down this rabbit hole. There's nothing like hyper technical. So if you're a developer or like a hobbyist who's really interested in this stuff, you're probably not going to find anything like super detailed, but it's still worth a read to kind of get a, a general idea of what's going on here and what this new class is. And our final research article, at least one open source vulnerability found in 84% of code bases. This is just a quick report, not going to cover this too much. If you want more details, go ahead and read in the description. But really, it's just a quick report showing that open source isn't foolproof and is still victim to vulnerabilities and other issues. Additionally, just a quick statistic here, of the about 1,500 code bases examined by the researchers that included risk assessments, about 91% contained outdated versions of open source components, which means an update or patch was available, but had not been applied. So again, stay updated. With that, we'll move into our politics section, and we're going to start with a... I guess this is an update. I don't know if we covered this story or not. The headline says, U.S. Supreme Court snubs Wikipedia bid to challenge NSA surveillance. Okay, so basically back in 2015, so two years after Edward Snowden came forward, Wikipedia tried to sue the NSA. And their grounds was basically because Wikipedia contains a lot of articles that could be on things like politics, religion, all these kind of different potentially hot button issues or controversial issues. They argued that the NSA intercepting everyone's traffic who was visiting Wikipedia was a violation of both the First Amendment, you know, freedom to freedom of speech and the ability to do whatever research they wanted to, and also the Fourth Amendment, which protects users against uh, unreasonable search and seizure, which is legally speaking, that's actually how a lot of uh, privacy arguments are framed in the court is the police are supposed to have to go get a warrant to conduct searches and take your property and stuff like that. Unfortunately, in 2021, the U.S. Circuit Court dismissed the case and said that the NSA could not be sued basically because of what's called the state secrets privilege, which is, uh, if you've never heard of this, I'm so sorry. I'm about to ruin your day because it's the most frustrating thing ever. It's basically the government saying we legally cannot defend ourselves because doing so would uh, jeopardize national security. And therefore we cannot submit any evidence or documentation because it would jeopardize national security to make this stuff public record. The U.S. Circuit Court bought that explanation and was like, all right, cool. Well, then we can't move forward with the case because there's no, like, there's no case. Wikipedia, of course, did not find this answer satisfactory. So they tried to appeal the case 
And unfortunately, it looks like that appeal has been denied. NIST plots the biggest ever reform of cybersecurity framework. So this was first published in 2014 and updated to version 1.1 in 2018. The CSF provides a set of guidelines and best practices for managing cybersecurity risk. Following a long consultation, NIST has published a concept paper for CSF 2.0 and opened it up for further review. The resulting feedback will be used to develop a final draft of the revised framework due out sometime this summer. One notable change is who the framework is aimed towards. Since the publication of CSF 1.1, the U.S. Congress has explicitly directed NIST to consider the needs of small businesses and higher education institutions beyond its original target demographic of critical national infrastructure organizations. Meanwhile, a new govern function will join the existing five precepts, identify, protect, detect, respond, and recover, with the aim of positioning cybersecurity risk alongside other enterprise risks, such as threats to financial stability. For the first time, the new framework will have a significant focus on supply chain risk management, helping and encouraging organizations to address third-party risks of all kinds, from cloud computing to computers, software and networking equipment, along with the non-technology supply chain. There's tons more. Obviously, this is a whole rework, version 2.0 of CSF. So if you want to get the deets, definitely check out the sources. All right, this next article comes from the Danish Data Protection Authority, and it says use of cookie walls. I think this was like a like an official statement. This is the examination of two websites who, I didn't even know this was a thing. They were offering users the choice of either accepting the cookies or paying for access. So in the first case, the DPA found that this practice is legal, mainly because the services are equal in content. So the paid version and the free version are at least the same enough that they're basically the same. And they said that the price was not, quote, unreasonably high, unquote. However, they found that some data processing was still going on in the paid version of the website, and they could not find a reason that that processing would still need to happen. So basically, they told the company, like, either you need to explain to us why you're still processing some user data, or you need to, like, change your practices. In the other case... The DPA found that the paid version of the site was significantly different from the free version, which meant that users were not actually being offered a fair choice. Whether they chose to pay with money or data, the data version, they were actually getting less content. So it wasn't actually fair. And in this case, they just straight up told the company, you got to change the way you're doing business. This is not okay. Japan's central bank to pilot digital currency starting in April. So Japan is growing a list of companies exploring the possibility of adopting a digital currency with the country's central bank, the Bank of Japan, announcing that it would launch a pilot to test a digital yen in April. The pilot program launching in April aims to test the technical feasibility not fully covered by the POCs and to utilize the skill and insights of private businesses in terms of technology and operation for designing a CBDC ecosystem in the possible event, CBDC's central bank digital currency, uh, in the possible event of social implementation, said executive director of the Bank of Japan during his speech. Transactions do not occur between retailers and consumers for now. Only simulated transactions will occur during this pilot stage, according to the bank, and Japan will have a CBDC forum and invite private businesses engaging in retail payments or related technologies to participate in the discussion. So this is a very pilot attempt, but I have not seen... Did you see anything in this article pertaining to privacy? No, but my my the reason I think this is privacy related is because in every situation I've ever read about CBDCs, the goal here is to push away from cash. It's to push towards digital cash, hence the uh, the privacy, the related privacy thing there. And our last political story says European Commission bans TikTok on staff devices. 
I'm going to be honest, that's kind of all there is to the story. I'm a little burned out on TikTok getting banned stories. However, we have covered this story so many times in the U.S., I, I feel like it would be really biased and hypocritical if we didn't point out when it's happening in other parts of the world. So uh, Europe, it's coming for the European Commission. Again, this is only from staff devices. This is not for all users. And staff have until March 15th to comply with the order. And now FOSS, free and open source. We're going to open up with Linux 6.2, which is an update to the kernel. And it's the first mainstream Linux kernel for support with Apple's M1 chip. So overall, this is pretty boring. And even Linus himself kind of just branded this as a boring release. But this is now adding upstream support for Apple M1 Pro, M1 Max, and M1 Ultra chips, which are all really powerful ARM-based laptop and desktop chips, which are fantastic. Um, So newer Mac owners can look forward to running Linux on their M1-powered machines, maybe someday. Our next story comes from Ubuntu, which says Ubuntu flavors and spins will no longer be able to support uh, to install Flatpak by default. That's an important word there. Quoting the article, while Ubuntu Linux hasn't provided Flatpak support out of the box due to the the preference of using their own Snap app packaging slash distribution format, Ubuntu flavors and spins have to this point been able to pre-install Flatpak support if they desired. However, for the 2304 Lunar Lobster cycle and moving forward, Ubuntu flavors will no longer be permitted to install Flatpak packages by default. Flatpak support for Ubuntu and its flavors will remain available in the archive for those wanting to install Flatpak support, so those who wanting to install Flatpak support can easily do so post-install, unquote. The goal here is basically to create a more unified, smoother experience. Instead of trying to support everything and doing it kind of poorly, they're going to focus on supporting only like the native things, which are, you know, dot .debs, snaps, things like that. I'm going to go ahead and play devil's advocate here. Ubuntu is trying to go public. This, to me, the, the cynic who doesn't trust companies, this seems like a very, uh, this seems like they're starting down a dark path. Like, okay, to be fair, Flatpak support is still there. You just have to, like, go add it to the terminal, which is not the hardest thing in the world, especially with something like Ubuntu, which is so widely supported. I don't think you're playing devil's advocate there. I think that's what most people think. I'm actually going to play devil's advocate here, okay? I say great. Like, this is awesome. Like, we need, I think, okay, okay, I don't like Ubuntu. I'm going to say that right away. I don't like this. I don't like Ubuntu for the record. I like Debian and I like Pop. I don't like Ubuntu. I don't like Ubuntu either and I don't love Canonical, but I think that Linux still needs something like that. Like we need kind of like the Apple, like the shitty company of Linux because then like we have, they have that option. It doesn't impact any other distro people. It's just Ubuntu doing its thing. If like companies want to have like a company to trust, which is important for like a company or someone who wants like a formal organization that they can guarantee are going to exist in 10 years, that they can put their operating system with long-term support on all their devices and they know it's going to be properly maintained and Ubuntu adds their own ecosystem around all of this. I think it's great. Like let them do their thing. Thoughts? That definitely was devil's advocate. <laughs> I think that is devil's advocate. No, I see I see where you're coming from, I guess. Keep in mind, though, to be fair, also, a lot of other distros are based on Ubuntu. You know, like, Pop is based on Ubuntu, Kbuntu. Either way, like, these distros can still, like, do their own thing with these. Like, I know, they, they could add Ubuntu. They could add Flatpak back into it before they release it. I know, but... I don't know, man. I just, I don't like it. Access your Bitwarden vault without a password. Basically, Bitwarden has rolled out login with a device that works exactly how it sounds. When you log in with a new device, you can choose to confirm the login with the other device. This is kind of cool if you're in a situation where you want to log in on an iOS device, but you have your Bitwarden account hardened with a YubiKey, but not the NFC or Lightning model. 
you can still log in and use your other logins as the second factor. It's worth noting this uses push notifications and the risk of multi-factor authentication fatigue still remains present. That is a weird... That limitation right there that was very specific and odd it apparently is Nate's configuration. That's not good planning on your end. <laughs> Our next story is actually kind of an update. It says Tor Project moves away from infrastructure ran by internet monitoring firm. So we this was actually a headline story. I really should have looked up which episode this was on, but it was about Team Simru. They are a mass surveillance company who contracts to the U.S. military and lots of other U.S. federal departments. And turns out they had a, a conflict of interest with Tor. At one point, they had a board member. Tor had a board member who was also like the CEO of this company. He left in August of 2022, by the way. I think the story came out in October and they were actually using some of that company's infrastructure like servers and stuff. They were donated to Tor by Team Simru. It's not, at least to me, it's not clear when Tor like found out about all this stuff, but they claim that at least since early 2022, they've been planning to migrate off of Team Simru stuff. And then this story broke. So they were like, okay, now we've really got to accelerate this because this doesn't look good. This is simply an update to say that they are in progress of that migration. They expect to be done by spring of this year. Next story comes from Brave. I'm going to try to keep this quick. They have some updates. So starting an upcoming version 1.49 for Android and desktop, and this has already been available since version 1.44 for iOS, Brave is hiding those open in-app annoyances that appear on websites. But Brave is hiding those, and they also consider those privacy harming because sites that know that the native versions of their apps aren't subject to the kinds of privacy protections that Brave applies to websites, will try to open their apps instead of you just sticking inside your browser. On top of this, starting in version 1.49, Android and desktop, and already available since 1.45 for iOS, Brave includes partial support for procedural cosmetic filters, which is an advanced way of specifying which page elements should be hidden when blocking ads and other page annoyances, so that's more technical for people who want to look more into that. And starting in versions 1.48 for desktop and 1.5 for Android, Brave now prevents trackers from learning the size of your device's screen and the position of your browser window on the screen, which I'm sure we'll see uh, that updated hopefully in sites like privacytests.org. And then there's also additional protections against pool party attacks, which if you know what that is, then good for you. If not, then Brave is just a little bit more secure for things. And our last FOSS story is a really quick one. So Internet, that's just how I'm going to pronounce it now. Internet is a privacy-focused suite. Drive, photos, send, and more. They are open source, and they just completed their first third-party audit conducted by Securitum. They state no significant issues or vulnerabilities were found, although I think there were a couple medium ones. And any issues and vulnerabilities that were found have been fixed and have been retested by Securitum and are verified as fixed. And as a nice bonus, unlike some companies, the audit is available to read publicly. So you can just go to that link, scroll down a little bit, and you'll see like three links. Like here's the web, here's the desktop, here's the mobile. All right, Misfits, Air Canada plans to begin facial recognition for Toronto flights very shortly. So this is currently already in use at Vancouver International Airport on select flights to Winnipeg and eligible customers entering the Air Canada Cafe at Pearson. They're expected to expand it to Toronto Pearson International Airport very shortly. They have already expanded to testing the Maple Leaf Lounge inside Terminal 1, and customers who wish to sign up can do so beforehand using the application. The airline says the data is encrypted, stored only on the customer's mobile phone, and requires additional consent for the data to be used on the day of travel, which will be retained for up to 36 hours. For those who don't, travelers can still present their boarding pass and government-issued photo ID as they have done so before. And our last misfit story, this one just came in. Recent iPhone thefts highlight the danger of using passcodes in public. 
Quoting the article, Wall Street Journal's Joanna Stern has been hearing from victims about a specific kind of iPhone theft. What's happening is thieves are watching for people to enter their passcodes in public places like bars before stealing the devices, sometimes right out of their hands. Joanna interviewed one victim whose entire digital life was lost after her iPhone was stolen with thieves changing her Apple ID password within three minutes of taking her smartphone. They then stole thousands of dollars through Apple Pay, opened an Apple card to make fraudulent charges, and more using the passcode they obtained. These thieves often work in groups, with one distracting a victim while another records over his shoulder as they enter their passcode. Others have been known to even befriend victims, asking them to open social media apps or other apps on their iPhones so they can watch and memorize the passcode before stealing it. A 12-person crime ring in Minnesota was recently taken down after targeting iPhones like this in bars. Almost $300,000 was stolen from 40 victims by this group before they were caught, unquote. I'm going to be honest, I never expected this to be a legitimate threat for the average person, but here we are. I know some people are not going to like this. For the record, I'm not going to talk trash about you. I totally understand where you're coming from. I've actually kind of leaned into the the fingerprint scanner on my phone. Both Apple and Google claim that that never leaves your device. All the processing is done on device, all the hashing and everything. Again, I'm not going to disagree with any of you who say I don't trust Apple or Google to be telling the truth. They've given you plenty of reason to doubt them. I don't blame you. The advantage there is it allows you to have a really strong password or passcode for your account, like particularly on iPhones where this is linked to your your iCloud account, but you can easily unlock it with the fingerprint. And that's, you know, for like Apple store or the, the app store and payment and stuff like that. I mean, that's rough. Like if they steal, especially in the case of an iPhone, if they steal your phone, they can pretty much just unlock your anything from there. So that's really difficult. I, I'm not going to say everyone should switch to fingerprint because like I said, I understand why some people wouldn't trust that, but it definitely makes you think. Um, be, be a lot more thoughtful about where you unlock your phone and what for. So a few things here. One, I want to really harp. The real issue here is that people can reset their Apple ID password inside of their settings on an unlocked iPhone with just the password required to unlock the iPhone. If someone got your six-digit code and they can unlock your phone, they can also reset your iCloud password on that device. That's the real issue here. They don't ask you to like type in, please verify your iCloud password before we change your iCloud password. Some tips that I'm going to give. One, I get it, like the whole being skeptical of Apple and Google, but there's really like no good reason for them to collect your fingerprint remotely like that. There's really no evidence of it. And at the end of the day, like, yes, if you don't trust it, go for it. But also I'm much more willing to trust that something that is like, very likely to be done on device to be done on device. I'm going to trust that more than everyone around me having the opportunity to look over my shoulder and look at my password while I'm typing it in, which is another really big risk. So I'm trying to like analyze the two risks here. So that's why I do like Face ID and Touch ID because they're good prevention for that. And also even things like security cameras. Security cameras can pick up people typing in their passwords, but it's a lot harder to be able to bypass Face ID and Touch ID via those traditional methods. So one, like that is a good approach. Privacy screen protectors are really nice. Also, don't choose that default six-digit code. Try to use like longer, more complicated passwords to access your phone and things like that. With that, we'll move into our Q&A section. We're going to start with our regular Grogach. This is a good question, I think. Grogach asks, it is quite often that you report on authorities and governments cracking down on tools that criminals use, such as EncroChat and Anom, and you mentioned that Signal is a better solution. But with this, do you fear that it will make criminals use Signal and that it will result in the authorities and governments will try to crack down on Signal as well? In my opinion, the government's already trying to crack down on Signal. Australia's basically got a backdoor clause in their government. I know that's an oversimplification for any of the Australians listening, but they do have key disclosure laws. UK and US have both, and Interpol, have all three expressed like, grr, we need to get rid of end-to-end encryption, think of the children and all that garbage. They're already trying to crack down on Signal. So in my opinion, like, would they focus on it more? Yeah, probably. 
at the same time, we're not really like encouraging anyone to break the law here. We're just kind of pointing out how ridiculous these like hardened encrypted phones and these like proprietary honeypot apps that nobody's ever heard of, but for some reason everybody keeps using it. Like personally, I don't think it would draw any particular extra attention that is already being given. I think that most most of the bans that we see aren't specific to specific applications like EncroChat. A lot of them are just like we are trying to ban technologies. So it's a little bit more indiscriminate, which would group Signal alongside with it. So no, I don't think criminals using Signal or anything else. Like it's more so a matter of safety and tr- like choosing trusted solutions here that do work. Now, if more people are using solutions that do work, that makes it harder for these governments to get access to messages. Then yeah, there might be more pressure on all of the messengers. So that is like a possible uh, drawback. But to be concerned about this is like a temporary solution. Next message is from Frank S who says, hi, Henry, and I say, hi, Frank. And they say, on the last show, you mentioned you were going to try to get your privacy.com cards working in your Apple Pay. I don't know if I said I was trying. I've already been using it, so that's that's been a thing. And then you said, when I started to get privacy aware, I disconnected and stayed away from services like Apple Pay and Google Pay. My reasoning was that this is one more party that has access to my payment information. Am I seeing this wrong, or is the situation with privacy.com and similar services different, in your opinion? So, first off, uh, services like Apple Pay, they're a little bit different. I think Apple Pay actually does encrypt the information on your device, and I think it's end-to-end encrypted. Whereas Google Pay, I don't believe is that way. So they are slightly different in implementation, but also you have to really evaluate like what the services offer you. So when you use Apple Pay, I believe it actually uses not actually your real card information with the vendor. So the vendor actually never ends up seeing your real card information. It might receive like a proxy number or something like that, which is really fantastic from a privacy perspective. And I believe Google Pay is doing something similar as well. I think Google Pay, at least they announced uh, alongside with Android 13, I believe, when they released the Google Pixel 6s, whatever that event was, or the Google Pixel 6a. When they released the 6a, they very much like talked about their aliasing solution that's natively built into Google Pay. And same thing with privacy.com. Like privacy.com, you are trusting another party, but you're trusting a party to help not have to share your information with like dozens of websites. So again, like you really have to balance that like first versus third party concerns and who you're trusting your data with. It's not always like 100% minimalism because then you would use nothing and then you wouldn't have access to tools like simple login or like uh, services that would actually very much help you. But generally speaking with aliasing solutions, Aliasing solutions are a transfer of trust. So instead of having to hand over your actual card information to 50 websites, you just trust your card information with privacy.com, and then they allow you to use crap information on 50 websites. Generally, it's a good trade-off, but again, it depends on you and your use case and what you're chasing. Next one is from Bizarrely Flabbergasted, which is also a hello, Henry. Hello, Bizarrely Flabbergasted. What app or tool did you use to generate the profile picture with no face, just the face silhouette, as seen on TechLore about our team and also Discord channel? I've seen other profile pictures with the same silhouette only or cartoonish style. I think it's a very cool way of obfuscating facial features on profile pictures. I made those by myself, actually, so that's how they were made. Like, I just kind of draw the face. Like, I, I get a photo of someone, I have people send me a photo, and then I'll pretty much mask over their body and their face with like general like selection tools and then I'll fill everything in to kind of give that silhouette look. So yeah, I make those. It's our own proprietary method. Not much I can share to like help you do it unless you wanted to like just copy what I do, which is fine too. 
I don't really care. For the record, I have actually, they're right. I've seen other people do the very similar thing. Um, so I don't know if there's like a website out there. I, I believe that you did it because I've seen your Photoshop skills and I know you could do that real easily. But uh, I don't know if there's like a website out there that does a similar thing or if they just also are good with Photoshop. But I've definitely seen some other people do do that too. Or if you don't know Photoshop, maybe next time you see somebody with a photo like that, just ask them like, hey, did you make that or did you get it generated somewhere? The last question comes from the little man says i'm considering using pass keys on ios this might still be a henry question because you know more about pass keys than i do um considering using pass keys on ios instead of security keys which i currently use on other platforms however i'm hesitant because all pass keys can be accessed from any device signed into my icloud account although pass keys are more convenient than security keys which require plugging or tapping on the device i'm not sure whether i should use both types of authentication or wait until pass keys are more widely used and tested they seem like a good idea but what issues could arise from the use of them Man, I really do not know much about passkeys. I know they're definitely not very widely adopted yet. So honestly, I haven't really dug into them. Like I said, you know more than I do. Do you have any thoughts? Yeah, I guess it really depends. First off, passkeys are stored with end-to-end encryption, and that should be all be done locally on each device. So I wouldn't be too concerned about someone like remotely accessing iCloud if that's a concern. Just to clarify, so if let's say, let's say I had an iPhone and a Mac, and I'm signed in, and I've got my passkey, if an attacker signs in on a third device... Is that does that mean they don't have access to that passkey? Kind of like signal messages. They probably shouldn't, unless um, I haven't tested that myself. But I assume that there's some kind of uh, mechanism in place that people have to like verify the device, or they have to verify the passkey to have it added to a new device. Yeah, I'll look into that. But I assume that like either way, now you can actually enable YubiKey support for your Apple account. So to add any new Apple account. There's like very small differences between like what a passkey offers versus a YubiKey in my book. But a YubiKey is always going to be a little bit better because it's separate from your main device. So it is one less like guessing game. And also like you can lose your phone but not lose your keys and your keys might have your YubiKey on it. So for example, earlier we talked about people screen peeking in, at bars and taking users' passcodes. Um, if someone did that with that passcode, they now have your entire passkey on them. But if they didn't take your keys, then I guess you're still good. I think that they're generally pretty secure. I think passkeys are probably better than TOTP in a lot of ways, but I'd still go for a YubiKey if you can. Based on that response, because again, you know way more about this than I do, but based on what I'm hearing from you, it sounds like there's pros and cons to each one. I would say if you're unsure, personally, I'm in the camp of I would wait it out. I know, Henry, you're like a real big early adopter type. I'm a little bit more of a slow and steady type. So that's honestly one of the reasons I haven't really dug into passkeys too much. But yeah, I would say if you're uncertain, YubiKeys and or hardware tokens in general are tried and true. So yeah, I would if you're on if you're unsure, I'd stick with those at least for now and see how it plays out a little more in the future. Just to clarify that, I don't think you're going to lose anything by like holding off for another year or two and sticking with a security key. That's all we got for this week. So once again, we had some unfortunate research coming out of Mozilla about the Play Store. Ubuntu will not be natively supporting flat packs, but don't worry, they're still there if you do a little digging. Android is hardening their firmware, which is good news all around. ExpressVPN is uh, possibly got a bug in it. Um, Activision's got some breaches going on and much, much more as usual. Once again, our promo segment, we got Patreon if you want to get some perks. Uh, for $5 a month, you can ask a wonderful question. Like, we've been getting some real good questions the last couple weeks, so thank you for everyone who's been doing that, which they won't hear because... Most of them won't hear because they're in the $10 tier where they don't get this promo segment. So 
and they also get like a longer version that has more of our, our rants and our off topic ramblings and our additional thoughts and opinions and stuff like that. So, and then if you don't care about any of that, but you still want to support us in a more private manner, we got Libra pay. It's still fiat currency. It still goes through Stripe or PayPal. The most private option of course is Monero, which is anonymous cryptocurrency. We don't see anything about you other than like the transaction ID and how much you sent. And we really appreciate that. Every little bit helps. Thank you guys so much. And of course, obligatory reminder on the topic of Monero, Monerotopia coming up May, Mexico City. Again, we've got the link to the website and a 10% off code down in the description. And actually, Henry recently did an interview with the guy who's putting Monerotopia together over on the TechLord channel. So go check that out if you want to know more about Monero and Monerotopia and all that stuff. Thank you guys for listening to Surveillance Report. The final thing, as always, we want to ask of you is share the podcast around. Make sure that you are subscribed to get updates in the future and give us a rating if you're on a platform where that is an option. We are trying to reach as many people as possible with the message of privacy and every little bit helps. So thank you again for listening or watching and we will see you next week.